Please welcome Scott Southern. <laughs> Corn juice and spider bite are both uh, in the book, actually. Let's see. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, Skylight. I've been coming to Skylight um, since it was before... Since before it was Skylight. Yeah, it was Chatterton's books for uh, uh, many years. And there was a time when the only bookstores around were Pickwick Books down on Hollywood Boulevard and Chatterton's, which was here. And it was sad when Chatterton's left, but I think it was less than a year after that that uh, Skylight uh, opened up. And uh, it really kind of changed... I think the way people looked at bookstores in Los Angeles, especially around this part of town, because uh, they do so many readings and, and so many things for uh, um, writers and and book people, you know. Uh, so I do. I I've always I always encourage everyone to. Um, if you can support a local bookstore, it sometimes it, it's not the same. It's not the discount you get at Amazon, but it's kind of worth it. To uh, to support the bookstores and 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 keep these keep them going. Um, at the same time, if you read um, like Big City and and you think Jesus, this is the best book I ever read, um, you go to Amazon and uh, give us some stars, and uh, you know because uh, every writer really uh, uh, anytime you hear about a book. A lot of people go immediately to Amazon, and you don't necessarily have to buy it there, but they, you look at the stars, you know, and and you read the reviews that other people write, and you have to, and then uh, that really does help to sell a book. Even though some of my favorite reviews are are ones that like uh, it's a one star review, and I hate this I hate this book so much you couldn't pay me to read it. <laughs> so they, you get a lot of stuff. Um, Water. Ah. This is from chapter one of Big City. Uh, Big City is an imaginary city, uh, much like New York uh, at the turn of the century, um, right around the uh, um, early 1900s. I usually think of it as about 1901, and that's the era that I studied before I actually wrote the book. Uh, And this uh, first bit that I'm reading um, introduces some of my favorite characters. Um, And, um, yeah, it introduces some of my favorite characters. It It takes place outside of Big City. So this is really before, this is on our way into this this city where all these different stories are happening and all these people have come from uh, everywhere to, uh, um, you know, kind of a roll of the dice. All right, here we go. Charlie DeBunk drops two lead balls, plunk, plunk, into the flared mouth of his flintlock blunderbuss. The balls tumble down the rusty barrel like fish line sinkers. He sets the antique weapon across his legs and picks up a red clay jug of corn juice. He takes long, happy drinks that scorch his gullet and muddle his head. Charlie DeBunk has been loading his blunderbuss for a week and has yet to pull the trigger. He's waiting for something special to shoot. Five days and a hundred miles ago, he and his two partners made a trade with a big lunking Pollock who calls himself Big Pollock. 
Big Pollock gave Charlie the gun, along with a pouch of lead balls, a pouch of powder, a pouch of flints, a 20-inch ramrod, and a pouch of gold nuggets, easily worth $500. Charlie and his partners, Eddie Plague and Skunk Brewster, in turn gave Big Pollock a 10-year-old Aborigine girl they had liberated from a starving tribe of Chickasaws. Charlie figures they got the better end of the deal. The girl had not been old enough to noodle and had whooped like a warrior when Charlie noodled her anyway. Charlie pours powder into the long muzzle of the black iron red rust rifle, rips a piece of rag and rams it with his ramrod in and out. Makes him think about noodling, which makes him think about Bitch Bannum, the fully grown woman he has chained to a tree. Charlie's youngest partner in the white slavery concern, Eddie Plague, is preoccupied with other things, none of which has anything to do with noodling the savage bitch. Eddie prefers people who are free of stink. He would no more consider physical relations with the bitch than with either of his two idiot partners. Very soon, Eddie will be done with them all. They will sell the pit woman, split the take, and sever ties. Charlie DeBunk takes another long drink of corn and feeds a couple of more lead balls to the mouth of his musket. Makes sense to Charlie, just as each drink makes him feel a little bit better. The more gunpowder, lead, and wadding he puts into the gun, the bigger hole it will blow. He rams his ramrod with passion. Charlie's worked up an intense hankering for Poon. Problem is, Charlie has an intense fear of Eddie Plague. Eddie Plague is intensely scary, and Charlie does not want to piss him off. Maybe he should check with his true partner, Skunk Brewster. Maybe Skunk's wanting some poon, too. Maybe together they can get some bitch nookie. Charlie says to Skunk, I reckon if we was to hold down bitch Bantam just right, we could get us some mighty good puss. Skunk is smarter than DeBunk. He's not as ready to follow his dick into a danger zone. He's not as likely to forget why this woman is worth more than any ten of the women they've sold in the past. Skunk does, however, agree with Charlie. Bitch Bannon would be mighty good poon. Skunk needs to give the situation some thought. Hand me that there jug of bug juice, he tells Charlie. I need to think. Skunk furrows his brow as though thinking hurts his head. Charlie passes the jug and Skunk drinks a dizzying gulp. Charlie crams another load into his rifle. Skunk takes another drink and eyeballs the woman. She glares back from behind a jungle of ash blonde hair, her eyes through the tangled vines, opaque and violet, firing blank rounds of antithope. Bitch Bannum has thus far spent her relatively short life in iffy but still legal servitude to others. Born nameless and fatherless in Joplin, Missouri, Bitch had been dumped by her mother and found by an enterprising gambler named Dicey Ducey. Normally, Dicey would have would never bothered with a two-year-old garbage heap orphan, but Bitch was special. Dicey found the 30-pound tot already so toughened by life that she sat gurgling and cooing amid a pile of savagely exterminated and partially eaten terrier-sized rats. The kid had a talent for killing. Dicey Ducey took Bitch under his wing and went to work setting her up as the first ever pit bitch. Initially, he pitted her against as many as ten rats at a time, drawing such an enormous crowd that soon, along with the wagering, he began to charge admission. As Bitch grew, she graduated from rats to cocks, thus the name Bantam, to pit bulls and wild hogs. At 20 years of age, Bitch was 5'9", 150 pounds. Her baby teeth had been replaced with a set of permanent choppers Dicey had filed to sharp, fang-like points. Her fingernails were long and hard and sharpened like daggers. In a pit against anything short of a grizzly bear, Bitch was liable to bring even money. 
The thing Dicey Ducey never figured was that Bitch would grow to be smarter than he and she had no loyalties to a man who would lash her with a horse whip, kick her like a dog, and call her a worthless skank. The thing that always puzzled Bitch was the surprised look on Dicey's face when she leapt from the bloody guts of a dead Arkansas razorback to ringside where she ripped out Dicey's throat with her teeth and nails. Dicey Ducey looked at her as though his best friend had turned on him. He had expected eternal gratitude for his guidance and care. Dicey earned his violent death and was too oblivious to know it before taking his final breath. Afterward, Bitch ran from the crowd hoping to hide away in the woods, make her way to another town where no one knew who she was. Unfortunately, her escape brought hysteria to the town folk as though a full moon werewolf was stalking their young. The local sheriff, along with a gun-toting posse and a kennel of hysterical hounds, hunted her down, chained her, and put her in a cage. The sheriff was a law-abiding entrepreneur. Slavery had been abolished, yet he found legal ways to hawk feminine wiles to a buyer's market. It took seven of the sheriff's men to hold Bitch down and force her hand to sign an X to a contract. The agreement was a ditto of the forms the sheriff used in his China Girl whorehouses. The girls were employed at a dollar a day. They agreed unknowingly to pay back a week's wages for every day they were sick. A woman's nature is to bleed a few days each month, and this, according to the contract, was classified as an illness, keeping them from work. The girls were thus indentured by debt for life, which mercifully was usually short. <clears throat> now, Bitch Bannon is 20 years old. She's grown six feet high. She's hard and cut like a superhero. She conceals great pultritude beneath a curtain of dirt and animosity. The contract means nothing to her, but still she is chained when not sent a ring and sold and traded time and time again. She's legally the property of the holder of the now yellowed and creased to a soft cottony sheet contract. Skunk Brewster, Eddie DeBunk, and Eddie Plague keep the nine-year-old contract with Bitch Bantam's squiggly X folded in an oilcloth haversack along with their pouch of gold nuggets and Bitch's clothes. Bitch is accustomed to indignity, but these three shitheads are the worst yet. Skunk Charlie and Eddie have clubbed her, stripped her of her clothing, and dragged her chained and naked halfway across America. Much of her time is wild away with castle-in-the-sky fantasies. At this moment, however, Bitch Bantam is plotting escape, murder, freedom. Charlie DeBunk stands, torques his skinny frame, and points his musket at Bitch. Bitch knows what Charlie wants. All she has to do is get him close enough to grab. Chains or no chains, once she puts a grip on Charlie DeBunk, he'll never buy or sell another woman. Bitch sits butt on heels, balls of her feet in the dirt. She opens her legs to Charlie. Looky there, skunk, Charlie says. The bitch is in heat. Skunk's not so sure. I ain't so sure. I don't think we ought to be getting too close. I think maybe we ought to club her down first. Charlie takes a couple of baby steps toward Bitch. Hell's bell, skunk. We close her for, We club her first. She won't do no humping. Bitch is shackled at the wrists and ankles and maybe two feet of play in the heavy chains. She begins to growl deep in the back of her throat. Eddie Plague is getting irritated, distracted by his imbecile partners and their penis-motivated hijinks. Leave the woman alone, Eddie demands. If you don't, I'll shoot her dead. Get your things together. It's time to go. 
Skunk hasn't slept well since Eddie joined them. Eddie gives Skunk's creepy dreams. Skunk crews up his, screws up his courage. Crud's sake, Eddie, it ain't nothing personal. Sides, if you shoot her, we ain't going to be able to sell her no more. And if I club her, we still got our vestment intact. And me and Charlie ain't had us no real poon since forever. We ain't ready to go yet. Skunk is hoping Charlie will back him up. Charlie's fear of Eddie is also well developed, just not as developed as he's craving for poon. He takes another baby step toward the woman. Skunk is up now. He and Charlie have silently voted to ignore Eddie and go for the woman. Skunk removes his rosewood truncheon from under a canvas bag. He ventures within a few feet of Bitch Bannum. Bitch knows what's coming. She flexes her body and the tight iron bracelets cut into her skin. She watches the men closely. Skunk takes a quick step toward forward, swings the club, which bounces hard across Bitch's shoulder blades. She winces and grabs at the polished cudgel. Skunk jumps backwards and gives a hoop. Eddie Plague is disgusted. He doesn't like his partners, but he hates Bitch Bannum. He doesn't like his partners, but he hates Bitch Bannum, hates all women. He wants assurances that she will not enjoy Skunk and Charlie's assault. Eddie's opinion being that bondage and rape are enjoyable experiences. Give me the club, Eddie tells Skunk. Skunk grins, shrugs, shrugs like an idiot, and hands the club to Eddie. He pulls down his grimy pants and long johns and calls first dibs. His peter is stiff and shaped like a boomerang. Shit, Charlie DeBunk says, it was my idea. I ought to get first dibs. Eddie readies himself to crack the woman's skull when he notices that she's no longer looking at him. She's looking beyond him, up to a hilly crook on the dirt byway. Skunk Brewster, Eddie Plague, and Charlie DeBunk turn together and look up the road at a most unusual sight. Slab Pettibone and his bare fuzzy wuzzy have materialized from around the bend. Slab is singing and playing a ukulele. Fuzzy Wuzzy's dancing along in a four-footed two-step. My Lulu hugged and kissed me. She wrung my hand and cried. She said I was the sweetest thing that ever lived and died. Slab Pettibone and Fuzzy Wuzzy stop in the middle of the rutted road and look down a hundred yards at the three men and the shackled woman. Fuzzy Wuzzy stands on his hind legs to his full six-foot height to get a better look and a taste the air. Technically, Fuzzy Wuzzy is an American black bear, Ursus Americanus. But Fuzzy Wuzzy's hair is not black. Fuzzy Wuzzy's a rare bear, an Ursus Americanus cremoti, also known as a ghost bear. Fuzzy Wuzzy's fur is buttermilk yellow. Slab Pettibone has no legs. Years ago, they were cut off mid-thigh a couple of inches above a hungry gangrene monster. Fuzzy Wuzzy serves with honor as Slab Pettibone's legs. Slab is harnessed to Fuzzy Wuzzy's back just above Fuzzy Wuzzy's front shoulder bones. His hair is long and silver. He has a gentleman's face with a curly triangle of chin hair and a thick handlebar mustache. He wears a black tuxedo coat with long tails and a red sombrero hat. When Fuzzy Wuzzy stands on his hind legs, they look to be nine feet tall. Fuzzy Wuzzy smells the gathering of humans. There's sense the cartoon jet stream of windowsill pie. The woman's bouquet is tastier than the usual odiferous stench of Homo sapiens, almost like a she-bear. She's naked and in chains. Before Slab Pettibone, Fuzzy Wuzzy had been in chains. It's an image that Brussels bristles his scruff and lays back his ears. He curls his lips in aggravation and issues a low moan from the back of his throat. 
Below them at campsite, Charlie DeBunk and Skunk Brewster seem frozen in incredulous mouth-breathing stares, as if neither has the brain power to digest the song and dance team of Fuzzy Wuzzy and Slab Pettibone. Charlie's the first to break the spell. He picks up his musket and grabs for his flints and powder horn. He puts powder in the firing cup and the two flints under the hammer. Charlie shot people before and he shot animals before, but he's never shot anything like these two. Charlie debunks about to shoot himself the trophy of a lifetime. Slab Pettibone takes in the scene, the woman in chains, the man with a club, the other man with an old-fashioned blunderbuss pointing at them. He tweaks Fuzzy Wuzzy's ears forward and comes the command to hit the deck. Fuzzy Wuzzy irons out flat like a fluffy beige carpet. Charlie DeBunk pulls the trigger. The old flintlock's hammer clicks, sparking the flints, which ignites the spoon of gunpowder, which lights up the nine loads of powder, wadding and lead balls, which explodes the barrel, the stock, and Charlie DeBunk's head. Charlie's headless corpse lists from side to side. He takes three rubbery steps like a vaudeville comedian's drunken pantomime, then collapses to the ground. Skunk Brewster's pants are still at his ankle. His peters have deflated. His peter has deflated. He goes for his pistol, a 38 caliber small frame automatic, which unfortunately is not loaded. Skunk frantically digs bullets from his drooping pants pocket and shoves them into the five-shot cylinder. Eddie Plague is ahead of the situation. He knows all about Slab Pettibone and his pet bear Fuzzy Wuzzy. They're nothing to run from, just another ten-cent novelty. White hat heroes not known to strike the first blow. Eddie steps back a couple of feet to avoid splatters of Charlie DeBunk's blood and bone fragments. He's calculating his cut of Bitch Bantam now that the take has changed from thirds to 50-50. Eddie forgets for a moment he's moved closer to the woman. Slab Pettibone looks up at Fuzzy Wuzzy, looks up from Fuzzy Wuzzy's furry back and assesses the situation. While it's true that Slab and Fuzzy Wuzzy never start a fight, getting shot at is deemed a challenge. Slab gives Fuzzy Wuzzy a command. Go get him, Fuzzy Wuzzy. Fuzzy Wuzzy takes off like a fubsy rocket. Slab holds on to his hat and yells, Yahoop, hoop, hoop, yahooey. Slab has, skunk has two shells loaded, no time for more. The bear slash man is closing in at alarming rate. Eddie Plague backs away slowly from the action, closer still to the pit fighting woman. Bitch Bantam grabs him by the ankle, pulls him to the ground, and takes a bite through his cotton twill pant out of his thigh. He struggles to hit her with a billy club. She grabs an arm and an ear and pulls his face close enough to kiss. She spits his hunk of thigh and tattered pants fabric in his face, then bites off his nose. Slab Pettibone and Fuzzy Wuzzy screech to a standstill in front of Skunk just as he raises his thirty-eight. Fuzzy Wuzzy rears back on his hind legs and roars a challenge into Skunk's face. Skunk turns white. He smells berries and grub worms from Fuzzy Wuzzy's lunch. He attempts to point and shoot, but his hands are shaking out of control. Fuzzy Wuzzy's been given the signal for a round of fisticuffs. With the heel of his right front paw, Fuzzy Wuzzy Rabbit punches Skunk in the chest. Skunk lands hard to the ground. He sees above him an enraged beast poised for attack. He comes to a rash and irreversible conclusion. Death by bullet is easier than death by mauling. Skunk Booster grins up at Slab and Fuzzy Wuzzy. He puts the pistol to his head and pulls the trigger. The gun pops and Skunk drops dead. It's the most peculiar thing Slab Pettibone's ever seen.
Eddie Plague has used his truncheon to successfully batter his way free of Bitch Bannum. He's discombobulated and he scuttles onto the road and keeps going until sometimes later when he falls unconscious into the brush. Slab Pettibone diverts his eyes from the two dead men. Slab hates when all manners of creature die, even no account slave travers like Skunk Brewster and Charlie DeBunk. Slab is as well embarrassed to look at the naked woman. He's shy around the opposite sex. They make him nervous. And this woman is not only naked, but she's the most magnificent gal he's ever seen. She's near big as Fuzzy Wuzzy. Slab Pettibone embarrasses himself with his thoughts. He flushes red behind his whiskered face, and his heart thumps his head. He averts his eyes from everything outside the back of Fuzzy Wuzzy's crown and begins to sing. If you monkey with my Lulu gal, I tell you what I'll do. I'll carve your heart out with my razor. I'll shoot you with my pistol, too. Fuzzy Wuzzy sways with the song and sings along in a low, slow, sofa bellow. He looks at the woman and senses a primitive kinship. He wonders if she'll wrestle with him. Fuzzy Wuzzy loves to wrestle, and this feral woman is just the right size. He bows and does a do-si-do. I spend my Lulu in the springtime. I seen my Lulu in the springtime. I seen her in the fall. She broke my heart last winter, said, Goodbye, honey. That's all. Bitch Bantam watches the shy, singing, legless man and the dancing bear. She smiles at the bear and cannot remember the last time she smiled at anyone, man or beast. It feels strange and happy on her face. She spits Eddie Plague's nose into the dust and wipes his blood from her lips. Thank you. Um, questions? Come on. For the book, I wanted to do a western, and that's not how it turned out at all, uh, except for this this first part. And I had, you know, um, Slab Pettibone became he's he's one of the main characters, and and he's also uh, a writer of westerns and pulp fiction and and, and things. He writes these far fetched stories. Um, I actually wrote a book by Slab Pettibone. It's it's that I got when I was so involved in this, and. Um, yeah, yeah, someday it would be very cool to release that one. But uh, anyway, he um, they were going to be cowboys. Slab Pettibone was a guy with no legs who rode around on a on a like a skateboard uh, sort of thing. But then I thought, well, you know, I'd be more comfortable on a bear. <laughs> and I don't know, the the story just went off in a, a lot of different directions. You know, you, you go to I've been to a million readings over the years, and uh, one of the things you hear so often is, well, you know, I wrote this character with, with one thing in mind, but they just took over and wrote it themselves, and, 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 and you know, and, and that's how the book uh, got to where it is. And uh, my people, they didn't really say anything to me. Um, I had to make them up as I went along. But, um, and I thought when I was writing it that I was writing this kind of mainstream you know oh I don't know like a, a, a sophisticated Harry Potter or something <laughs> and um, the story just got weirder and weirder um, though it's not I, I mean it's not 
it's just different. I, I don't know. And and I honestly, at this point, I just don't know what the motivation was or where it come from, came from. I did write an outline, and and I would go every day at the, pretty much at the end of the day. I would go back and change the outline for what I was going to do for for the next day. But I did have a basic a basic story. I had uh, a few people that I wanted to to have, and uh, um, you know a few of them that are really uh, rather um, my favorite. My favorite characters are are and there's a lot of different characters here, but the, my favorites are uh, Slab Pettibone and and. Uh, Fuzzy Wuzzy and Bitch Bantam and a woman named Fritter McTwobit and uh, and a, a rather evil uh, capitalist uh, named Warner Quackenbush, who uh, has a, um, a he was born with a, a condition. It's called it really exists. It's called Froelich's uh, syndrome, and um, you you never mature. Um, and it, it actually, this came from years ago. Um, we had friend, we have friends. We were having dinner with friends, and they, they started telling us a story about uh, J. M. Barry, the guy who wrote uh, Peter Pan. And uh, they said he had this strange disease, and he could never get older. He would never, in fact, mature. His nuts would never drop, and um, and. It was this disease, and that's why he wrote a boy who would never grow up, you know. And so then, when I I started thinking about the book, it sounded like a good idea. And I, I studied up on uh, uh, J. M. Barry, and that never happened. You know, it it, it wasn't true. No. Um, however, I thought, well, fine, that's going to happen to my guy. Yeah. And uh, so I had a guy who who that happened to, and he stands about. This tall, and he's he's that big around, and, and uh, uh, kind of sick and twisted. Hey, in my first draft, I remember counting through the characters, and I think there were like thirty-five, and uh, so I I knew I I had to to carve it down, and uh, there's not. There, I mean, there's a lot of different people that you come across at different times, but in general, there are only uh, one, two, maybe eight really important characters that that come back and forth. Yeah, and they, you know, it it all kind of starts with uh, different stories, and and they all eventually come together. To, uh, to to form one story, so that was the challenge. Really, was to have all these different stories and then bring them in, so that at some point everybody knew everyone else. And uh, at, you know, questions. I noticed that uh, you have chosen not to use dialogue. Chosen which? Not to use a dialogue in, in your book. I mean, you tell about the characters, and you don't give them a voice. You do. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't be sorry. Um, I yeah, everybody has dialogue. Oh. Okay. And uh, and I try to. I do talk about each different person. And occasionally, when I when I write stories, you'll find it more in uh, uh, Streetwalkers, 
than anything else I've written is uh, I do have a tendency to say um, like so and so and then so and so said uh, said this in such and such a style but it's not a quote it's not a, uh, uh, a dialogue as dialogue usually is so I do tend to do that and uh, I, like I say I especially did it in uh, the uh, Streetwalkers book but uh, yeah they do and and once again the, the first draft I wrote um, you know I, I, I thought that there was a very good chance that I was going to be a, a, a Thomas Pinchon and uh, um, all these other uh, famous uh, literary writers and so I didn't put any quotation marks in it at all and uh, fuck no I'm not doing it you know <laughs> I'm I'm too creative. I'm too cool. I'm not using uh, uh, punctuation remark or punctuation marks. But then I realized that it's probably not the smartest thing to do, and uh, went back and did it the way you're supposed to do it. You know, there's there's this little bug of rebellion that crawled into my head at a young age. Is uh, Fuzzy so. Wuzzy and uh, the book is called uh, uh, Slab Pettibone and F- or, uh, Slab Pettibone and Fuzzy Wuzzy um, oh, the con- in the, in the uh, on the island of lost time, <laughs> and uh, it's about uh, I, I think it's about thirty or forty pages. I wrote it after I wrote it this, and uh, they go through all these kind of magical things. And Fuzzy Wuzzy starts out as a little bear cub. The slab pettibone sees in a vision in a, uh, a, an American Indian's tent, and uh, um, it's actually it's 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 a lot of fun. It's just goofy as hell, you know. And, and they, there's like a a character that's a, uh, um, a a water spout really or a, or a tornado that comes after him. She's called the the foul uh, Ellen the foul mouthed typhoon. And uh, so she she curses the whole time that she's spinning around. And because it's a kid's book, uh, he writes for kids. He could only write just blank, 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 you know. Somebody? Anybody? No? Okay, then I am going to read one little tiny part. Um, Fuzzy Wuzzy and Bitch Bantam uh, after... Slab and Fuzzy Wuzzy have rescued Bitch Bantam and uh, they take kind of take her under their wing because this is a woman who's been um, really under slavery all her life and uh, other people have uh, and she of course uh, um, the, one of the things I, I, I wanted to do in this book I always wanted to write something that people would think was uh, feminist and uh, to a great degree, I, I think I accomplished that. And uh, uh, Bitch Bantam is a, a really a pretty great feminist character. But anyway, she's she's very innocent in the beginning, in spite of the fact that she can rip a guy's head off. Um, she's this very very innocent woman. And uh, Slab takes her with him, and he gives her the gold nuggets that the uh, bad guys had in their their haversack. And so she's able to buy a little uh, house next to uh, a little house that he buys for, for him and Fuzzy Wuzzy. And then uh, and they, they, they bought places where there's a little bit of a woods out and back so that Fuzzy Wuzzy can be a bear and go out and play in the woods. And, and Fuzzy Wuzzy and, and Bitch Bantam uh, 
get this very immediate um, relationship. You know, and it's uh, it's it's pretty sweet. It's it's kind of well, you know, we we all fall in love with with dogs and kitty cats and and, and all that stuff. And and I like to think you could do the same thing with a uh, big uh, buttermilk yellow bear. <laughs> so this is just a couple of pages. It takes place in the woods. Um, uh, it, Kerosene Row is uh, the street that they live on, and uh, this is in the woods in the back, uh, late one night. Fuzzy Wuzzy's lounging, stomach to egg yolk moon like a fluffy recumbent snowman, licking grub worm and berry residue from his lips. Behind Slab Pettibone's house, a mini forest sighs in the quiet. The dark sky is fish belly silver. Fuzzy Wuzzy says, oomph, oomph, and smacks his lips. He rolls to his paws and walks to a young tree, thin and 20 feet up. He stands on his hind legs and attacks the tree with his upper body, shadow boxing. His claws gouge the skin and take hold, going up. He climbs five feet and hugs the trunk like a dear friend and decides to shake it up. He rocks his 467 pounds back and forth. He moans happy. He flips the tree, whipping its tip like a fishing rod, then continues his climb. At 15 feet, the tree resembles a catapult. Fuzzy Wuzzy puffs out vowels, rips off a limb and brushes his teeth. He points his puppy dog profile to the tippy treetop, wondering how it might taste. Onward, he treks as the, as the treetop bows under his weight. With his claws in a secure groove, Fuzzy Wuzzy begins to spin. The tree thwacks around like a loaded spring. Fuzzy Wuzzy hits the brakes when he hears the crunchy cracks of the trunk below. Timber! Perplexity replaces the playful glee across his buttermilk baby face. The tree snaps, crackles, and breaks. Fuzzy Wuzzy focalizes the earth scene equivalent of oops. He falls to the ground and bounces like a bag of clay. The foliage shudders. Fuzzy Wuzzy rolls around in horseplay, wrestling limb and limbs and branches. He freezes when he hears an unwuzzy noise, goes to all four and takes a radar sniff. Fuzzy Wuzzy's practiced in staying out of sight when not with Slab Pettibone. People carry guns and don't think twice when it comes to shooting bears and minorities. Fuzzy Wuzzy's cautious. He relaxes when he determines the scent of a friend. He smells Bitch Bantam but cannot see her in the spectral lunar light. It's a little spooky for Fuzzy Wuzzy. Bitch Bantam jumps suddenly from the bushes and yells boo, then leapfrogs over Fuzzy Wuzzy, spinning and landing, facing him. Fuzzy Wuzzy shits three pounds of recycled berries, grubs, termites, and greens. He huffs a startled sentence. <laughs> Bitch Bantam's laughing through guilty feelings. Fuzzy Wuzzy looks faint like an old woman with the vapors. I didn't mean to scare you so much. I was just playing. She goes to Fuzzy Wuzzy, snuggles in under his legs and hugs him. She dances him away from the pile of scat, then rolls them both to the ground. She sits astraddle his belly and gives him leg fibrillating scratches. Fuzzy Wuzzy drifts into a dream of a clean icy stream, spawning salmon. Bitch Bantam leans back into his cozy fur and looks up at the moon. This is nice, she says. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. That's great. Oh, thank you. I would add uh, William Burroughs to the, to the 
Talk about the list of McCarthy and Gibson. I think there's like this beautiful sound. There's, uh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. That's, that's nice to hear. I told someone not long ago that, you know, you're, everyone who writes, I think, is, is you can find all these different writers in their writing that, that brought them to the place where they are. And I went from Edgar Rice Burroughs. When I was a kid, I went directly from Edgar Rice Burroughs with the Tarzan books to William Burroughs. Yeah. So, and, and there's a little of there's a little of both in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, let's give Scott another hand. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.